Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode 151 of the Employment Law and HR podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. I'm an employment solicitor and HR specialist and I run the firm Real Employment Law Advice, where we provide regular common sense advice to employers and employees on all aspects of employment law and HR. Now this episode is picking up again on the redundancy mini-series that I started a couple of weeks back. Um, This is part four of the mini-series and we're going to be covering selection pools and selection criteria, which can be one of the trickiest areas for employers when dealing with redundancy situations. So without further ado, we're going to get into this week's featured content. So you've started the consultation process and you are considering what employees you're going to be making redundant. So which employees you're considering making redundant. There is a requirement then to think of a pool. So you look at the pool for selection for the employees and then you go into the criteria for selecting from that pool which employees are being made redundant. So this is a situation, obviously, if you've got a closure of a a business and you're making all employees redundant, then there's no need to go through the selection criteria in the pooling. But in most circumstances, that won't be happening. So let's just say you are required to reduce the number of employees overall in the business in order to cut costs. Um, How do you go about choosing which employees? Well, the first thing to do is to consider the pool that you're going to select from. Now, there is no legal definition. um, So there's nothing, no guidance there in law that says what you have to do. There are, however, guidance that's developed over time through various cases. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about. When you're considering your pool, the first thing you should do is if there is a union involved or employee reps is to discuss with them. And it would be helpful in all circumstances, if you can, to reach an agreement with the unions uh, and or employee representatives about how you're going to define the pool for selection. Generally, it's very flexible. It's at your discretion as to how you define the pool. And if you genuinely apply your mind to the choice of the pool, then it would be very difficult for anybody to challenge that and to say it's unfair. That's not to say that it can't happen. And there have been a number of cases about whether the pool for selection was fair or not. Um, But I'm just saying to you, if you apply your mind genuinely to the circumstances, then it's unlikely that it will be challenged. What I find when I'm advising employees about redundancy is they will often have in mind that the pool should be much wider than the employer has actually chosen from. And obviously the reason for that is because I think if it's a wider pool, they've got more chance of retaining their jobs. Now, it's not always appropriate to have a wide pool for selection and therefore that won't necessarily render the dismissal unfair. So what do you need to consider? Well, as I said, there have been a number of cases that have been reported about establishing a fair pool. And the key thing is you have to act within the range of reasonable responses. So we come back to that test of reasonableness again. So when you're applying your mind to the pool, you have to act reasonably in doing so. 
And secondly, there is no requirement for you to limit the pool to employees that are doing the similar or the same work. So contrary to what many people believe, you don't necessarily just have to put employees into a pool if they're doing the same work. Um, you can draw from a wider pool if it's reasonable. It is, however, good practice to keep the pool narrow. And really, it's about common sense, taking a common sense approach to how you look at it. So, for instance, let's take the example, you run a factory and you need to make cuts for the shop floor. So those that are involved in the manufacturing process, it probably wouldn't be reasonable to put all of your staff into the pool for redundancy. So you know you've got to make cutbacks, but really you need to make those cutbacks in the manufacturing sector. It wouldn't be reasonable then to bring into it, you know, your admin staff, your managers, your sort of accounting or payroll, HR, all of those sorts of people. It wouldn't be reasonable to pull them all into that situation, even though some of the jobs might be interchangeable. So having a narrow pool is generally the best way forward. So as I say, when you're considering your pool, it's really best to take a common sense approach and to ask yourself, well, where is the work diminishing? What do the employees actually do? So if their job description and job title says one thing, but the actual day-to-day task says another, then you should be considering that and considering who is appropriate to be in the pool, not just on the basis of their job title. You have to consider if the jobs are interchangeable, you know, if it would be reasonable to draw on a a wider pool than just those that are doing the same work. And what is the skill set within the business? And what is the skill set that you need to retain for the business? I think that's really important. And that's a commercial choice, as well as applying your mind to the legal tests of reasonableness. And as I said, it's if possible, agree the pool with the unions and employee reps beforehand it's less likely to be challenged if they've had some input into it. And then when looking at the pool, I'm often asked if you can have a pool of one. So you've got one particular role that's no longer required within the business. Is it fair to have a pool of one and not draw upon a wider pool? And yes, it is. As long as you can justify your decision making and you've acted reasonably and you've really considered this fully, then you can go for a pool of one and it won't necessarily render the dismissal unfair. What I would say, as well as a practical tip when you're deciding on your pool for redundancy, make a note of your decision-making process and how you've reached that decision, what information you've used to reach that decision. Because if you are challenged and you can produce documentation to say, actually, look, we did really look at this. We looked at the business, we looked at what was required and we took a reasonable approach to, to defining the pool for selection. Then again, that's great evidence and you're unlikely to be successfully challenged on that. So you've got your pool, you've um, agreed it with the unions, you've looked at it fully and then the next stage is to decide from that pool which employees are going to be made redundant and this is where you would apply a selection criteria. Now your selection criteria can include anything you like really unless of course you've already agreed this, you've got an agreement with the union or employee reps about how a redundancy criteria will be shaped and how what it will include. It's at your discretion So unless there's some prior arrangement as to how you deal with it in any policies, procedures or agreements with the unions, then you can decide on what you want to put in that selection criteria. Now, clearly, again, if you don't already have an agreement in place, if you've got a union involved and you've got representatives, employee representatives, it would be a good idea to try to reach an agreement with them about the criteria as you're developing it, as this will once again prevent problems later on. 
What I would say about the selection criteria, you should use objective criteria as much as possible, which can be supported by evidence. Now, one place to start would be looking at what you actually measure already. So if you have a monthly or quarterly or annual reviews with staff, or they have objectives and criteria already in place, and you've got evidence to support those, then they would be good criteria to use in your selection. Because you've got the paperwork there, you've got the evidence to show, to show that actually, you know, it is based on real things and it's not just somebody's opinion about the employee. If you find that you've got selection criteria but there is actually no evidence to back up the scoring, then it would be good practice to have two managers who each look at it separately and score and then therefore they can't be accused necessarily of being unfair in their scoring if you've got two people doing it independently. But hopefully you'll have some kind of measures already and some evidence to, to support the criteria you select. So some examples of criteria that you can use or that you might want to consider are performance and targets, etc. So as I say, it's easy if you've got a situation where you give employee targets, you can use their ability to achieve those or their past performance as a way to select them and score them. And these would be these criteria would be used in combination. So it's not just one, you'd have several in order to reach your final scoring. Then you would look at skills and ability. Hopefully, again, this is measurable by their job role and training and what the tasks that they actually undertake. Then length of service. Now, there has been some question about length of service as a criteria for redundancy selection in the past. It used to be that in a redundancy situation, it was common for a last in, first out criteria to be applied. So in the redundancy situation, it used to be that if you were the last in, you were generally the first one out. Now, on its own, length of service criteria would likely be unfair. So if you just use that as a, a measure for selecting somebody for redundancy, you would likely to find yourself being challenged on that. But you can combine it with those other criteria and you can give weight to the scoring for somebody who has been with you for a long time. So you can reward loyalty by giving them a higher score for that particular criteria. And there has been a case on this which said that although it on the face of it is age discrimination, it can be justified by a means of rewarding loyalty and those people with the experience and skills, of course. Next, another criteria you could use is attendance. So this is where you would apply where people have been absent for whatever reason. Now, if you use attendance as a scoring method, you should not include absence that's disability related or that's related to maternity and pregnancy. So you can use attendance, but then you must not include within the criteria that. So if you've got an employee who has got a, a bad sickness record, uh, so they've got really low attendance, uh, but a portion of that is to do with their disability, then you would discount the portion that's for their disability. And this is where you having really good sickness records and recording is important because you should be asking your employees to complete a self-certificate if they are phoning in sick, for instance, you know, for the odd couple of days where they're not required to provide a sickness certificate. Therefore, you would then go back over your records and see which of those absences were related to the disability, if they have a disability, and which are unrelated. So those absences that are, for instance, you know, for, you know, a cold or a migraine or something like that, if it's not related to their disability, then you can include those in your scoring for the attendance part. And then finally, the disciplinary records. 
Um, you can have a look at your disciplinary records and give scoring or minus scoring, depending on how you're doing it, for anybody who's got um, current warnings or had any issues with disciplinaries. Again, talking about your procedures and the way that you work on a day-to-day basis, it's really important that you follow fair procedures in your disciplinaries and that you have good recording methods for that as well, so that if you did find yourself in a redundancy situation, you can refer back to those records in your selection criteria. So those are the kinds of criteria that you can use in order to select somebody for redundancy. As long as they're applied fairly, it's unlikely to render the dismissal unfair. You don't necessarily have to rule out subjective criteria altogether, and there have been some circumstances where subjective criteria have been allowed, but I would say to err on the side of caution here, and wherever possible, use those criteria that can be evidenced. Some examples of criteria which have been analysed by the employment tribunals in the past and in some cases where the employers have used subjective criteria include an employer who used the criteria that someone who in the opinion of the manager concerned would keep the company viable, so they scored on that basis, someone who was suited for the needs of the business under the new operating conditions, and somebody who could bring cost savings to the business, and finally, attitude. So those are, those four criteria there were used by employers and scored against, and they were each found to be unfair in their decision to dismiss employees using that criteria. I would definitely stay clear of using something like attitude as a selection criteria. Other things you should steer clear of is anything that's related to an employee's protected characteristics. So for those of you who don't know what that means, under the Equality Act, if somebody has a protected characteristic, then they have additional protection from discrimination. And that includes things like age, race, sex, disability, as I said earlier. And therefore, you should steer clear of any criteria that might be seen as a discriminatory criteria. And you should also not include selection for somebody who's part-time nor for somebody who is fixed term so you can't give weighting to a full-time employee for instance or a permanent employee you can't give them additional scores because they are full-time or permanent that would be unfair you've got to the stage where you have decided on your pool you've agreed your selection criteria and now you're going to be applying it so what do you need to do here well in these circumstances I strongly recommend that you provide a copy of the selection criteria to the employees who are at risk of redundancy during the consultation process. And I think it's really good practice to ask them to score themselves. So give them the criteria, what the weightings are, and then ask them to score themselves and and also to justify that. So if they're giving themselves a scoring of 10 out of 10, for instance, for uh, performance, then you would ask them to provide either in writing or verbally to you at a meeting, their justification for why they think they should score 10 out of 10 for performance. That should be then looked at against the scoring that you've given. And then I would suggest having a further discussion with the employee about your scoring, so what the final scoring is. So you provide it to them and if they come out of it as being one of those employees that's being made redundant, so they've been selected, then I would give them a copy of the the scoring with your justifications and then allow them the opportunity to respond and to have a discussion with you about how you've reached those scores. The more open and transparent you are, 
the less likely you're going to get a challenge for unfair dismissal and the more likely it is that your process and your procedures will be seen to have been reasonable. I have dealt with some employers in the past who have been really reluctant to hand over that information to their employees and there have been some cases on this which have rendered dismissals unfair where employers have refused to hand over the information and justification. If you've done your processes right, you've applied your mind fairly, you've justified your decision making, then I don't see any reason why you shouldn't hand it over and what, you've got nothing to lose really. Now when it comes to getting other people's scores, this is this can be quite a contentious issue because I've had, again, I've had cases in the past where employees have seen who else is in the pool with them, then found themselves as the person being selected, so coming out one of the lowest scores in the criteria, and then they've looked around at their colleagues and thought to themselves, how on earth have I been selected? You know, I know what my ability is and I know what their ability is and I'm sure I should be higher on the list than them. In those circumstances, there is no obligation on an employer to provide the scoring information for other employees. However, what I would say is there is nothing wrong with anonymising information, so giving them details of where they sit if there's 10 employees who are at risk of redundancy and you're making four employees redundant then giving them a, a table if you like or a chart with the scoring of others and where they sit in that so that they can see whereabouts they are in the pecking order without actually disclosing other employees information. As I say you don't necessarily have to do that but if you're being challenged by the employee who's making accusations about the fairness of their selection, it's better to be open and transparent with them and explain to them why they've been scored the way they have. And if necessary, without giving information, explain how they compare to their colleagues. So to summarise, you need to have applied your mind in a reasonable way to who you're going to put into the pool then you need to have looked at a fair and objective selection criteria, which you can justify your scorings in order to select employee for redundancy. What you should note from this episode of the podcast is the importance of having good procedures in place, good record keeping and good management of your staff throughout the duration of their employment. Now, the reason for doing things like appraisals and, you know, monthly or quarterly reviews with employees is so that when it comes to situations like this where it is a difficult situation of redundancy there are no great surprises about an employee's position within the business or their performance so they know if they're not meeting the criteria that you need them to throughout the year and then if you end up in a redundancy situation they're not sitting there going well I thought I was doing everything as I I should have done I don't understand why I'm the bottom of the criteria and in addition to this, it's about having that justification and paperwork to support your decision making. So hopefully you found that episode helpful in terms of deciding how you're going to deal with pools and selection criteria. Of course, if you have any questions or you'd like some help and advice on this, do not hesitate to contact me. My email is alison at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk. We do have a DIY redundancy product available to purchase on our website for £100 plus VAT. 
And this includes all of the documents that you'll need in order to carry out an effective and legal redundancy including a suggested selection criteria. You can find this on our website, which is realemploymentloradvice.co.uk. Alternatively, if you are having trouble, then do not hesitate to give me an email or a call and I'd be happy to help you. Thanks very much for listening to this week's episode. I'll be back again shortly with part five of the mini-series on redundancy covering alternative vacancies. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you like further information or specific advice.